Good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, I've been reading a couple books lately, and they've been talking about preaching. And there's two different views on guest preaching. On this side, you want to speak less time uh, to get everybody home on time so they like you. And then on this side, they say speak longer so they'll want the pastor to come back and no longer have guest speakers. So I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to talk. And when I see people leaving, I'll stop. So... (laughs) Um, in a couple weeks, I think it's actually next week, you're going to begin a series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, we actually went through a series on the Ten Commandments with the youth group in the fall. It is incredibly rewarding. Uh, if you think you know what the Ten Commandments are about, uh, I would say you don't and that you need to come back for the entirety of that series if you can. Uh, the Ten Commandments, I don't want to give too big of an introduction because you're going into it next week, is the story of a loving father who rescues his children from Egypt, from the bondage of slavery, and brings them into freedom. But they do not live free. They live as slaves to their sin. And so God gives them the Ten Commandments to teach them how to live and how to follow him and not to be slaves to their sins, their own desires. And when we think about the Ten Commandments, one of the biggest hang-ups culturally is we don't trust the Ten Commandments. We don't think God knows what is best for us. We think that we can do our kind of own thing and move on from that. And, and I think the biggest mistake we make when we come to law in the Bible is that we separate the law from the lawgiver, right? We wouldn't ever have a sermon series going through the IRS, IRS tax code because we don't know the lawgiver. We don't respect the lawgiver necessarily. And, and so we do a series on the Ten Commandments because we respect and care for the lawgiver, which is God the Father. And so I want to give us a brief introduction today into the character of the lawgiver, God the Father. Um, And we're going to do so by going through a passage in Mark chapter 4. I've been obsessed with this passage for almost a month and a half. We taught on it in youth group. It was a day when I had something planned. The weather kind of knocked that out. And so Jen actually suggested this passage, and I've been stuck on it ever since. Um, And so I'm going to break probably a cardinal rule of preaching. I'm going to choose my text, and I'm going to kind of make it say what I want to. Uh, But I don't have a doctorate in preaching, so that's okay. Um, So we're in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Uh, In your Bibles, it'll have a heading, something like, Jesus calms a storm. Um, So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together this morning as your body, as the church, united under your gospel for your glory. Father, we pray this morning that you speak to us through your spirit, that we, we, are, we are reminded of the gospel that, that you have shown to us through the death and resurrection of your son, that we would come to believe in you more fully through what your text says, tell, or tells us this morning. We pray all these things in your glorious son's name. Amen. So we're in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Um, And it starts out by saying this, on that day, whenever you read through the Bible and there's a transition statement like this, you have to wonder what is it there for. On that day refers to the first 34 verses. Mark chapter 4 is all one day in the life of Jesus. Jesus, we presume, probably woke up early, went out and taught by the Sea of Galilee. He was standing in a boat along the lakeshore of the Sea of Galilee. The sun is probably beaming down on him all day long, and he is teaching. He's teaching the crowd that's followed there, and he's teaching the disciples in the boat that are with him. 
Um, and so he just spends all day teaching on that day. He's talking about faith. He's talking about what heaven is like. He's talking about belief, stuff like that. On that day when evening had come. And so Mark tells us that it's evening now, that an entire day has passed, that it's getting dark. And, and one of the things we know about Jesus is Jesus wasn't a teenager, right? Jesus wasn't waking up at 2 in the afternoon, working till like 6, and then going to sleep again. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, is waking up early, probably at sunrise. He's working all day. It's now evening, and he's probably tired. And so he says to the disciples, let us go across to the other side. And so this is the command given by Jesus. We're going to go. We're on this side of the lake. We're going to go to the other side of the lake. Um, And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat. And so, so far, we're pretty, we got the story pretty far, pretty good. Jesus has been teaching all day. Now it's nighttime. They're going to go across the lake. He's now in the boat with the disciples. And Mark is going to say two things now that are really kind of weird as we read through the story. Number one, he tells us that Jesus, he got, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. This statement, just as he was, was kind of weird the first time I read it. And as I was studying commentaries, nobody really answered it. They kind of just glossed over it. We know by by reading through Mark that it's the shortest of the Gospels, that Mark doesn't waste time using words he doesn't need. We also know that the Spirit guided Mark writing this and that everything in there is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So there has to be a reason for the just as he was. Um, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't understand it until I went on a date with my girlfriend to see the Avengers. Um, In the Avengers, there's a a superhero called the Hulk. The Hulk, his, his true identity is Bruce Banner. He's a scientist. But when he gets angry, he turns into the Hulk, right? By looking at Bruce Banner, if you were just to look at him in a movie, you wouldn't think there was anything miraculous about him, anything crazy or different about him. He just looks like a regular guy. But at some point, when he gets angry, he transforms into this, uh, this crazy, powerful being. The disciples at this point don't know who Jesus is. They're still trying to figure it out. It's not until Mark chapter 9 where the disciples make the, the, the exclamation that this is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And so they're trying to figure out who Jesus is. One of the main questions in the Gospels is, or in, in Mark is, who is this man? Who is Jesus? How does he have this power? How does he speak with authority? The last question in the verses we're going to read is, how, who is this guy that even the winds and the waves obey him? And so they're saying Jesus, just this regular-looking human being kind of guy, got into the boat with them. There was nothing magical about him. There's nothing powerful about him. So when he calms storm in a few verses, it's not like this incredibly tough, uh, godly-looking guy got in the boat. It was just Jesus, a normal-looking guy. And sometimes I think we, we look too much into the... Uh, divinity of Jesus, that we leave out the humanity. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I heard a sermon by a pastor once who said that Jesus was a carpenter. And as a carpenter, Jesus was perfect, and so he never had to do any work. He, the, the rule with carpentry is you measure twice and you cut once. He said, well, Jesus didn't need to measure, he just cut, and whatever he did turned into a table. Right? We have to come, we have to conclude that Jesus is a human being. He's also fully God, but he's also fully man. And so the disciples are saying, Jesus is a fully man. He looked human. Everything about him was human. We don't expect him to do these crazy miracles. We're trying to figure out who he was. And so the guy who got in the boat, just as he was, was the same man who was teaching all day. 
And other boats were with him. Mark concludes this, this, this verse with. Other boats were with him. Once again, this is one of those phrases that seems weird for Mark to put in because he never mentions the boats after this point. He doesn't mention the boats during the storm. He doesn't mention the boats on the other side. And we'll talk about that in a few seconds. And so that's just a brief introduction. And so what I want us to get out of uh, the next few verses is that when we come to God, when we understand who God is, we need to understand who God is in light of who we are. That we need to understand how sinful we are before we can understand who God is and how God relates to us. And so when we look at the Ten Commandments the next 11 weeks, we need to understand that we as sinful, finite beings, we are not on the same level as God. And so I think these verses are going to do a good job of showing us where we are in relation to where God is and who God is. And so we get into it. There's going to be three greats that Mark points out in these verses. The first one comes in verses 37 through 38. It says, And a great windstorm arose. That's our first great. A great windstorm. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And so there's a couple things in here that I want to point out. And the first ones are that Jesus was asleep on the bottom of the boat. And there's two things I want to say here. And the first lesson is for the men in the audience, especially those who are fathers, who are husbands, that the purpose of being a man is to to pour yourself out for the glory of God, that you pour yourself out in your work. You come home and you pour yourself out for the glory of God raising your children. You come home and you pour yourself out for the glory of God raising and, and loving your wife. The disciples here, they let Jesus sleep. They, they were working all day. They were with Jesus. Uh, I've, I've done youth ministry. If you've ever worked with kids, you know that, that it's not just they come and listen. They're probably distracting. The disciples are probably doing crowd control. They're working. They're busy all day. Jesus also is busy all day, but they let Jesus go to sleep. And so, men, sometimes you may be tired. You may be exhausted, but there's still work to do. The disciples had to get across the other side of the lake. They didn't have a motorboat. They had to row by hand. They had to use the power of the wind, whatever it was back then, to get to the other side. It was work. And so you pour yourself out all day, but you need to come home and you still pour yourself out. Allow your wife to watch TV while you cook dinner. Allow your wife to do these things while you do the dishes. Hold your men to that. Um, (laughs) The good part about guest preaching is I'm gone next week. (laughs) You guys can't hate me. Um, The second thing I want to point out is that Jesus, is taking a, a nap, all right? Jesus spent all day teaching, all day working. He's tuckered out, and he's sleeping. The thing I want to point out here is that, that there seems to be a difference biblically between those who are following and serving like the disciples and those who are leading and teaching like Jesus, all right? They were both at the same place for the same amount of hours, but one is more tired than the other, Those who are following and serving Jesus, they still have energy left to spend. They can get across the other side of the lake. Meanwhile, Jesus, who's been leading and teaching all day, is completely tuckered out and needs a nap. And and so I don't know where you all are on on Lucas going on sabbatical, um, but those who teach and those who lead, they get tired more quickly. And they need that time to take a nap uh, for three months, whatever it's going to be. I... I promise you that Lucas is going to be blessed during this time, and he's going to come back and bless you after that. Um, But back to this text. That was just a free sermon for you all. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking, so that the boat was already filling. 
Um, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Um, so the first thing that we're going to learn about life is that there are going to be great storms that are going to come. Um, in this passage, there's a great windstorm. If you don't know, uh, Mark was discipled by the apostle Peter. Peter, when we first meet him in the Gospels, is a fisherman. He is a passionate fisherman. He fishes throughout his ministry with Jesus. When Jesus is in the tomb, he goes back to his life of fishing. Jesus, or Peter is a passionate fisherman. He was probably trained from a young age how to handle the storms that happened on the Sea of Galilee. So he knew what to do, how to handle it. He'd probably seen hundreds of these storms before. But when he tells Mark about this story, he says it was a great windstorm. This was a great storm. It wasn't just a little tiny thing. This was something that we could not handle. It was greater than anything we've ever experienced before. And so when it came to this storm, there's three different uh, people in this story, how they react to the storm. The first group is the disciples. And I'm going to assume by what I know about people is that they tried to solve the issue on their own. That they did whatever was in their power to solve the issue at hand. There's this storm that's going to capsize the boat. Four out of the 12 that are awake are fishermen. They were trained how to do this. And so I bet they got to work telling people what to do, what commands to follow. And they were going to try to solve it on their own. It's only after a while that they go down and wake up Jesus when it's utterly hopeless and all is lost. Um, We can kind of assume this because of the fact that they were fishermen. The fact that Jesus is asleep. There's this huge storm going on, and Jesus doesn't wake up during it, right? Most of the time when we have storms at night, I sleep through them because I'm already asleep. They're not going to wake me up. Um, It might have been a pride thing, you know? They didn't want to wake up Jesus if it was something they can handle. You know, if you're a mechanic kind of guy, you're not going to say, and there was a great problem with my car. The left tire was a little bit out of air, but it's okay. I took it to the dealer, and they filled it right up. No, you you can deal with that on your own. So they're fishermen, and they're like, we can do this. We don't need to wake up Jesus if we can handle it. Uh, There was another group of people, those that were in the boats, that followed Jesus across the lake. We never hear about them after this moment. So we have the group of people who try to do everything on their own, and then we have the people who try to retreat and fall away when things get tough. They they don't follow God in that situation. We can assume one of two things. Number one... The boats didn't make it to the other side, or Mark would have mentioned that they were there. And number two, we can assume that they didn't all die, right? The story goes that there was a great calm, and that's the end of the story. It's not that there was a great calm, and then there were a bunch of floating bodies everywhere. Um, We can assume that they didn't die, they didn't make it to the other side, so we can assume that they went back to where they came from. The storm got too much for them to handle. They saw it coming up and they thought, following Jesus is not worth it. And so they turned around and they went back. Um, Then there was the group of the disciples who after they tried everything, then they went and woke Jesus up and accused him of not caring. Listen to this. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I challenge you to read this, to find a way to read this where it's not an accusatory statement. There's no way to do it. He is accusing, the disciples are accusing Jesus of not caring, right? You do not care that we are perishing, right? I think this is kind of an accusation that includes a lot of things, you know? You're sleeping. We were busy all day doing this. We were with you while you were teaching, and now you're taking a nap. We let you sleep, and we did all the work, and now you're sleeping, and you're doing nothing, and you don't even care, 
right? I think it's an accusation against God. And when the storms of life come, we fall into one of these three camps. We say, I'm going to try to do everything on my own. And when what I can do fails, then I'll run to God. But if I can handle it, then I don't need him. Or we retreat and abandon. We don't follow God through the storms. We say, you know what? I'm out. I was promised better. I'm not going to do that. Or we begin to accuse God. You let this happen to me. How could you do this? If you were loving, you wouldn't do this. Right? And then there's something else I need to add just because we live in America. There's a group of people who will say, if you're a Christian, you will never suffer at all. You'll never go through anything bad. You'll have all the money you need. You'll always have a job. Nobody will ever die. And if those things do happen, you're not a very good Christian. To those people, I would ask the question, who is in this boat? Who is going through this great storm? This is the foundation of the early church. This is Jesus, the one who would die on the cross to forgive our sins so we could enter into the church. These are the disciples that would start up the church in Jerusalem, that would take the gospel to the corners of the earth. If they are suffering, we can expect that we are going to suffer. And so the promise through this that we see is that that having a relationship with Jesus will not get you out of the storms of life, but it will get you through those storms, all right? And so when we come to the great windstorms of our life, whatever they might be, we don't try to do it on our own. We, we don't run to God first. We don't retreat and abandon and go, uh, follow away from God. We run to God, a loving and gracious Father, and we don't accuse God. We try to seek to understand God's will in those things. Um, our next great is found in the next verse, 39 through 40. It says this, And he awoke, Jesus awoke, and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And so our second great is that there was a great calm. And, and there's two things I love about these verses. Number one, Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind. All right? He rebuked it. This is like if your child does something wrong and you rebuke them. You correct them. You tell them you're doing something wrong. This is why. This is what you should do instead. This is a, a rebuke to the wind. And, and I love it because throughout the Old Testament of the Bible, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is described as wind. The wind is described as life-giving. That wind, when it comes to farming, it strengthens crops. It keeps the sun out of, out of the crops so they can grow up strong. It strengthens them so they can grow up tall. The wind is supposed to be life-giving. It takes pollen and sends it someplace else so trees can grow. It's supposed to be life-giving. In this situation, wind, which represents the Spirit of God, is threatening to take away life. And so it's not doing what it was created to do. And so Jesus rebukes the wind. You're not doing what you're created to do. But in a rebuke, there's always a, you're not doing what you're supposed to do, but here's what you're supposed to do. And I think Jesus, as he rebukes the wind, calls it out and says, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to give life. Now you're taking life. There's a time coming. Don't worry. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die for the sins of all the people on this world. I'm going to come back and I'm going to set everything right. Nature, we know from Romans, is groaning for salvation, that the trees are crying out for salvation. And there's a time coming when Jesus is going to cause a great calm on the entire earth over everything, all people, all animals, all nature, everything that there is. And so Jesus rebukes the wind, and he says to the sea, peace, be still. And I love that Jesus now speaks to his creation We know from Colossians that Jesus is the agent of creation, that everything exists because Jesus created it. 
It's only fitting then that in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, when God creates everything, when Jesus creates everything, he speaks it into existence. Let there be, and it was. Jesus spoke creation into existence. Now he speaks creation into submission. And it's this cool idea that he rebukes the wind that he created. You're not doing what you're created to do. And he speaks the, the, the sea that he created into existence. Now speaks it into submission. Right? We have a great calm. The Jewish people call this shalom, where everything works together as it was intended to do in absolute perfection. That's the only way there'll ever be peace when everything works together in perfect unity the way that God has required it to do. The reason this doesn't happen, though, is because of our sin. The sin of man, the sin of woman, has destroyed the unity that is supposed to be in the world, this perfected perfection that's supposed to be there. And our sin leads to all the suffering that exists in the world. Sometimes our sin is simply we make a decision and we feel the consequences of that right away. Sometimes our sin is a result of what someone else has done to us. I know kids that are suffering because their parents were not loving. That's still a consequence of sin. They're still suffering because of someone else's sin. And then they're suffering as a result of the sin of people in general. Tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, different things like that. Cancer, all the diseases that, that, that threaten us. These are all things that are caused by sin. And so we need to understand when it comes to God that, that we are not good people. We are not good people who do bad things. We're not even bad people who do good things. When it comes to God, we are dead people who do nothing good. We may do good things in our sight, but in comparison to God, they are destructive. They're not bringing that calm, peace, shalom that God has created everything to work in. And so we need to understand this as, as a church, Christian Fellowship, that, that your sin, our sin, impacts not only ourselves, our families, but also our church. There are stories throughout the Bible of one person's sin affecting somebody else. The story that comes to mind most quickly is in Joshua 7. We have the story of Achan who, who stole something from, it, from God and he used it for his own gain. And God wiped out the army as, as they went into battle. And, and, and they, the consequence was that there was sin in the camp that needed to be destroyed. And so they brought together all the people of Israel and no one confessed. And so they broke it down by tribes and then by families and then by individual units. And finally Achan was chosen and said, God said, you're the one who sinned. And he confessed to have stolen what he wasn't supposed to have and the nation of Israel was supposed to kill him and his family and burn all of his stuff and so the sin of one man impacted the entire nation of Israel and impacted his family and impacted himself and so we have this idea in Christianity that we can have secret sins Uh, we have secret sins things that that we can keep to ourselves that nobody will know about that won't really impact anything And as we go through the Ten Commandments, those secret sins will come out more fully because God cares not only about what you do, but about what's in your heart and how you behave. And so what is your secret sin? What are you struggling with? What's holding you back from following God more fully? The the solution would be to confess those things, to repent of them, to go into your growth groups and to confess those things to each other. Our third great comes in the next verse, Mark 4, 41. Um, or 40, he said, he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey them? 
So Jesus just did this massive miracle. He calmed everything. There was this great storm. Jesus comes on the scene, and now there's this great calm, something they've never seen before. And the response of the disciples is great fear. Right? There was great storm, great calm. You think the story would end there, and the disciples made it to the other side. But no, they were, they were filled with great fear. And so Jesus says to them, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid of what's going on out there? Why are you so afraid of what the world can do to you? And I think this is what holds us back from following God fully, is our, our being afraid of stepping out on faith, right? We're afraid of not having enough money so we don't tithe, we don't give generously to the church or to God. We're afraid of losing our jobs, so we work 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. We spend time that we should give to our families working and not being with them. We are afraid of life, so we stay up all night worrying about what happens next. And I think that the three responses that we saw before to, to try to do everything yourself, to run away or to accuse God, are all results of being afraid. We're afraid of what's out there. We're afraid of external circumstances. We're afraid of what the world can do to us so that we become so afraid we try to solve everything. We become manipulative. We try to control every single situation and circumstance. We become so afraid so we just run away and hide. Something comes up. There's a problem. There's an issue. And so we run away. We don't deal with it. Some of us, we get so afraid that we turn to God, but we do so in accusing him of allowing us to go through these things. There's a verse in Luke 12, 5 that says this, But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus is saying, you're afraid of this storm. It's a great windstorm. Jesus isn't denying that. But you're afraid of that when you should be afraid of God. And so fear or being afraid throughout the Bible is technically a sin. Because you're trusting not in the promises of God to sovereignly get you through those circumstances, that everything works itself out in God's will and God's control, but you're trying to control everything on your own. And so fear, being afraid, is not acknowledging the sovereignty of God in your situations. And this goes to show us that when we come to the Ten Commandments, some of the things on there, they're not necessarily illegal. When we talk about adultery, the conversation might lead to pornography. Pornography is not illegal, but it is sinful. Coveting is not illegal, but it is sinful. And so when it comes to being afraid, it's not illegal. They're not going to throw you in jail for being afraid. But when it comes to trusting in the sovereignty of God, we are sinning by not believing in God that way. Therefore, it is a sin. But then Jesus turns around and tells us that we're supposed to be afraid. We're supposed to fear God. And so is there a contradiction in our verses that the disciples were afraid? Don't be afraid, but fear God. I don't, I don't think so. I think that when we have a right understanding of who we are in relationship to who God is, the natural response is fear. The disciples in this story, they saw the glory of God. They saw the holiness of God in this moment. And they realized how sinful they were in relation to how holy God was. And their response was fear. Not just normal fear, but great fear. They were afraid of the man who was in the boat because of his power. Throughout the Bible, whenever people come into contact with God, with the presence, with the glory of God, their natural response is fear. One of my favorite stories is in the book of Revelation where John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that Jesus' best friend, saw Jesus in his glorified state. And his first response was to fall down on his face as though he were dead. 
His best friend, the guy who could have just run up and give Jesus a hug, falls down as though he's dead because he realizes who he is inside of who God is. And so throughout the Bible, we have stories of Isaiah who say, when they meet the presence of God, when they, when they see the glory of heaven, say, woe is me, for I'm a sinful man. I'm an unclean person from an unclean people, right? We have the story of Jonah, a pretty good replica of this, where the story goes that Jonah's on a boat, they throw him overboard, God calms everything, and the people, the sailors on the boat, were so afraid of the God that caused this to happen. And so when we come to God, do we have a healthy sense of fear of where we're going into the presence of God? To give you a couple examples, when we pray as a church, what is your normal response? Is it fear? When we pray, biblically, as a church, what's happening is, is that we are gathering together, united as one body, and we are going before the throne of God. We are going into the presence of God to present our request directly before Him. Is there a healthy sense of fear when we pray? That I am going before God the Father, that I need to confess my sins, that I need to understand how sinful I am before I go before God the Father. Is there a healthy sense of fear when we gather together to sing? When we corporate worship, when we sing songs, is there a healthy sense of fear? When we acknowledgement of who we are in comparison to who God is. Singing, literally, we are gathering together as one body, one voice, singing up to God the Father, glorifying Him with our voices. We are going before God the Father once again and praising Him with our voices. Is there a healthy amount of fear in what we say? And so as we transition this week into the Ten Commandments, we need to understand who we are inside of who God is. The law, the Ten Commandments, don't have influence on us. They don't impact us if we think too highly of ourselves. When we submit ourselves to the authority of God, when we understand His holiness in comparison to who we are, then we can listen respectfully to what God has to say. And God has given us Ten Commands to live our lives by. In, in the nation of Israel, they needed these things. They, they practiced the three types of responses. They, they were trying to solve everything on their own. They built a golden calf because they were like, this is the God that led us out of Egypt. They tried to solve their, their worship of God issues by themselves. They tried to run away and hide. They were saying all the time, it's better for us if we died in Egypt than to die here in the desert. Let us go back there where at least we had this. And they accused God. You brought us out here to die. And so they had these three responses, the same responses as the story. And God shows up over and over and over again and shows them the great calm, the great peace that comes by knowing him. He brings them out of Egypt. He brings them across the Red Sea. He rains down the cloud of fire at night. He, He shows them. He brings them manna. He brings them quail. Over and over and over again, he shows them the great calm that comes through knowing God. But they lost the fear and respect of God. And so God had to show up through the Ten Commandments. The story goes that that on the mountain, as the people are creating this golden calf, God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments. And in the rest of the story, we know that God then tells Moses to build a tabernacle where he dwells in the presence of Israel, that his presence is there, and that people are so afraid that they can't go near God because they're so afraid of what might happen. And then there's the story where Moses comes down from heaven and his face is glowing from seeing the glory of God, and they ask him to cover up his face because they're so afraid of God. 
And so as we go through the Ten Commandments, we need, we need to understand these things, that, that God is greater than who we are. When we submit to his authority, when we understand who he is and how sinful we are, then we understand our natural response is not to run away from God or try to do life on our own or to accuse God of causing suffering, but to run to God in those things and then expect, respond to the great calm Jesus gives us in our lives. But we never lose the healthy sense of fear that we have of God. And so the Proverbs tells us the fear of God is the beginning of all knowledge, that, that we need to fear God to truly understand what God has to reveal to us. And so as we go through the introduction of the Ten Commandments next week and spend the next ten weeks after that going through them, I want us to, to remember that, that God is greater than who we are. And so um, that's where I'm going to end today. I hope that, that you were encouraged by this. This has been a story that's been on my heart uh, for a long time. I'm going to pray, and we're going to keep singing together.